Welcome to Smart Humans with Slava Rubin, presented by Vincent. In this alt investing podcast, Slava talks to amazing minds about their investment journey and finds out what it takes to make it in the markets. And now, here's your host and smart human, Slava Rubin. Hello, welcome to our next episode. Super excited for our next guest. Not many people are able to be known just by one name, but this person can be. He has an incredible fund, is growing a great company, and has a huge presence on Twitter and other distribution channels. Sahil, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here, Salah. Absolutely. Let's just start off with, you know, how did you get into alternative investing? Yeah. Um, I started uh, alternative investing by investing in startups, technology startups. So I moved to the Bay Area in 2010, 2011, uh, to work at a startup called Pinterest back in the day. And I was just, I realized that I was surrounded by these amazing companies. And, you know, Y Combinator was like 15, 20 minutes uh, down the road. And so I emailed Paul Graham and I said, hey, can I come to Y Combinator uh, demo day? Um, I would love to, Angel, I've never done it before, to be candid, but I'd love to, I would love to. and. I dropped out of school, so I have like a little bit of money to invest. Um, and he replies saying, "Hey, yeah, CC, you know, my assistant, like she'll send you an invite." And uh, and so I went and in, invested in in a company called Hello Sign, which was the only company I ended up investing in that day, and that ended up selling to Dropbox uh, in twenty nineteen. So it was a good one to get started with. Um, but that's kind of how I got started was to was investing in kind of private private equities, I guess. Would you say that was uh, luck or skill that your first uh, investment turned out to be an exit, you know, so quickly? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, uh, I think both. Um, there's certainly a lot. It, it seems to me that there's quite a bit of luck, a uh, beginner's luck in investing. Like there's uh, quite a few stories of people who, you know, I think Bobby Goodlatte, um, his first investment, I believe his first angel investment was Coinbase. Um, so it does seem to happen quite a lot. I think partly that's because many people build up all of these relationships. And when they're finally ready to act, they're able to like look back at like the last six months of people and say, hey, what do I want to invest in, right? It's certainly a different market today. 2010 was a little slower. You're maybe more able to do that. Um, I also think you're just super cautious, right? The first time you make an investment, you, you've actually probably said no to a lot of really great investments so that, you know, because you really want to avoid sort of a false negative. And so I think that's probably a, a, a big chunk of the reason why. Like if I was a smarter investor, I wouldn't have invested in one. I probably would have tried to invest in 10. Um, and if I had invested in 10, probably eight of them would have been worse than hello sign, but maybe one of them would have been much better. Right. And so, um, yeah, I think, that, I think, that, I think luck definitely kind of plays a part there. Um, cause these are pretty small sample sizes. So that's kind of inherent, but I do think what I, what I think the skill quote unquote involved was like, I took the initiative to show up and be, you know, I was probably the only person there who wasn't like a professional investor, you know, um, and all I did was send a cold email to someone I'd never interacted with before ever. Um, and I was an 18 year old kid, you know, college dropout. And I find that when I tell this story to people, they're, they're, they're not like surprised in the sense that they're like, wow, I, you know, like you did something hard, <laughs> more like, I didn't even know that, that you could do something like that. Um, and so I think that's the sort of the skill or, or it's sort of the, the part that I was in my control was I took the initiative to actually show up on a Wednesday. And I think many people are, are, are maybe, maybe think they can't um, where, where, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you're kind of like pushing on the door, but you don't realize you can just pull the door, right? Like it's that sort of thing where I think some people are, are trying to break in and, and maybe just thinking about it the wrong, the wrong sort of way. 
What year was that first investment? That was 2011. Okay, so fast forward, it's like another 11 years. And so how many uh, angel investments have you made since then overall? Um, overall, I think probably 140, 130, 140, something like that. Probably 100 of those in 2019 to 2021, 2022. And is that in your rolling fund? So about 30 are outside of the rolling fund and about 100 um, are through the rolling fund. And, you know, from that last decade, before you even got into this bigger volume investing, what were some of the lessons or what are some of the takeaways that you brought into that larger volume investing? Yeah, I mean, one one really important one is it really is a bet on the person and the people that you get to invest in. The product matters, the market matters, like all these things are non-zero. But I find that when you're making an investment that will take 10 years to mature, like there are so many changes that will happen to the team, to the product, to the market all sorts of things. Uh, and so ultimately, like the only constant really, in my view, is like, well, who who's the CEO of the company, right? Like generally that person is relatively consistent. Um, and so I find that like when I look back at a lot of my investments, like if I was really excited about the product, really excited about the market, but the CEO wasn't that strong, but that those other two things override it, like almost never does that work, right? Like long-term, I find that like that often doesn't work because it, it, the product and the market eventually become quite obvious to the world. And then a much better CEO will effectively beat that person often. Right. And so I think I, I really now kind of over index on people and how important the person is when I, when I do my, my investing. Um, how, about, how about the reverse, which is you're not so sure about the market, uh, but you like really love the CEO. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I've, I've learned that, that is often not enough. Uh, you kind of have to ha like love both. Um, and I find that partly it's because you might be, you might actually just be analyzing the CEO wrong. Like actually the fact that they're picking this kind of market or product, even when like the data shows that they shouldn't be, is often like, you know, you, you kind of fall for the, the char charisma more than the like intellectual rigor. Uh, so that's something to be kind of careful about. Um, but yeah, I, I just find that over and over again, like you, you just have to bet on the, on the person and some of the best investments are kind of pivots post-investment anyway. And so you're ultimately investing in that person's ability to vet, you know, future opportunities. The other thing I would say is that like, it's not just a bet purely on one person, but also on the people that that person is going to hire. And so every once in a while I meet someone who's like an amazing person, but is never going to be able to hire anyone that good under them for whatever reason, right? Um, and you kind of need both. You need the IQ, uh, but you also need the EQ in order to be able to build and hire the team and sell the product. And, and, and so I, I find that like that, that is often where I probably made mistakes or I've bet on someone who is an incredible person, but has, is, it cannot scale themselves. Like it has an inability. Like for example, you might find someone who's like a phenomenal computer science engineer or like crypto person or, you know, mechanical engineer or something like that. Um, but ultimately like these, these things become massive because they're able to grow an amazing team around them, right? Like Elon Musk is probably not like building the rockets himself anymore. And that's really, really, really important, um, to be able to do. And I think in this market, it, it gets harder and harder to be able to recruit those people for two reasons. One is like those people can go start their own companies and two, like there are more amazing companies that exist that you are competing with. Right. And so ultimately I think the the reason that Tesla will win if it does is because they were able to hire everybody that's amazing that wants to work on cars. As Apple, I think, did a similar thing with hardware um, and Stripe with payments. Like, I think it's not just that the, the best product wins. It's that the best product 
hires all the amazing people. And so like, you can't even build a better product because like all the people that have the skills to do that are now working at the, the major company, right? That's like the, the largest network effect that exists is you now become like this talent uh, magnet. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think I underrated that, how important that was. The other thing that, you know, kind of a tangential learning is there's often this appeal to investing in like the number two player, right? Or like, oh, this company's super old and we can build like a new version of it and it's better. Um, or this, you know, company dominated the market in the US, but like India hasn't been tapped yet. We're just going to build the same thing for India. I personally have found, um, and there's a lot of that kind of investing happening right now, especially sort of globalization and COVID and everything is kind of getting connected um, and Zoom fundraising. I find that that often doesn't work. Like often the number one player um, becomes 30 times bigger than the number two player, right? Um, so I, I and, and generally it's, is, I think it's because of a similar reason, which is like all of the amazing smart people want to go work at the number one company. Very few of them sure. work at the number two company. Um, but I find that that often happens where a lot of investors are like, well, the number one player is a billion dollar company. So if I invest in this thing at a $5 million cap, that's like going to be number two. That's an easy sort of investment. But I find that like, that's not the way that any employee is going to think about the company. Like, you know, like they're not thinking about it like one of a portfolio of a hundred companies, right? They're saying, what, where am I going to work for the next four years? Um, and so I think- So I, don't, don't uh, chase the sale. Exactly, exactly. I think that you have to, like the market kind of has to pull it, right? And you have to find the things that the market is already super duper excited about, which on the, on the buy side and the sell side, supply side. Uh, and then you just have to kind of like be okay with that, right? As an investor. Um, so, I think so you I, have a ton of entrepreneur experience and operator experience with Gumroad. It's been quite the roller coaster, for, uh, and that's been documented in various places. What would you say is the benefit, and your, you know, how does that make you a better or different investor now? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is that I have worked with many investors, uh, and so I kind of know, I think to a to a to a good decent degree as a as a CEO and a founder, what I need and want from investors. And often the answer is nothing, right? Like very often as a founder, you kind of know what you need to do. And, you know, 80, 90% of the time you're running the company, there's probably 10 to 20%, which you, you're raising money or you really need help. Um, but often you kind of just need to, you kind of know what you need to be doing in order to build a successful company. And I think that's been, it's very useful to know because I think as an investor, when I launched my, my rolling fund and I started investing a lot. It's very easy, I think, to be like, well, I need to compete on features. I need to compete on all of these things. So you try to like provide all these value-added services and you just basically become annoying to your founders because your founders are kind of like, I don't need any of this. Like, I don't need another Slack channel. I don't need another email list. I don't want to go to your whatever. Uh, and I just need engineers, <laughs> you know, like that's what I need help with. And it's very hard to help with that kind of thing as an outsider. And so I find that like, you know, part of the utility of being having been in a, a CEO and raising money from investors is kind of knowing that I don't actually need to do that much as an investor. And it's kind of better for me often to just say, here's my number, here's my email, I will respond incredibly quickly. Um, but I'm not going to go like annoy you and badger you randomly, because I know there's this joke that like the number one thing investors do is they basically just email you competitors, like, and every founder knows this immediately, like every, you know, they raise money, and then every like, three days, you get like an email from an investor that never emails you otherwise saying, Hey, did you see, you know, FYI, and there's like some new competitor, some product hunter, some fundraise or whatever. And every, every founder immediately knows exactly what I'm talking about. And like every investor who's never been a founder is like, what are you talking about? And like, why wouldn't that be helpful? And it's kind of like, well, you haven't been on the other side when like, literally you do nothing for the company, except you just tell them the competitors exist of which the founder already knows, because guess what? Like they care, you know? Uh, and so yes, things like that, where I, I, I sort of find myself 
like almost like the founder saw hill checks the investor saw hill where i'm like i want to do something as an investor because that's like the it makes sense to me as an investor why that would be helpful and then the founder is like well no that's actually would be really annoying like you should just stop you know um and so I, 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 I see different decisions and kind of different forks in the road that I've made as an investor because I've been a founder and I am a founder. Um, so yeah, I don't know, honestly, how some, some investors like who've never done that before, like, I don't know how they function or operate, to be honest, sometimes. Well, that was gonna be my question for you. So some of our listeners, not all of them have the benefit of building a great company like yours or are deep into operating experience. How would you suggest they break into angel investing? Should they be giving you money into your rolling fund? Should they be doing it on their own? Should they be trying to find some other fund? Like what, what's, what's your guidance as to how to start doing angel investing? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'd love more capital to deploy, of course, but uh, ultimately I think it is important to do it. Some of it, at least yourself, because you know, you want to learn these skills and the only real way I think to learn them is to, to make some bets, put some skin in the game and, and probably be wrong, you know, nine out of 10 times, but that one time, hopefully you know, you're, you're pretty, pretty right on. Um, I would say, and this is something I learned, uh, as also as a founder is like the, one of the most useful things an investor can do is to use your product as a customer and then give you feedback on your product as a customer, which is kind of weird because like anyone can do that. You don't have to be an investor in the company to be helpful in that way. But like, if you go use Gumroad, you make a bunch of bugs and you file it with me, you've probably created more value for me as a CEO than almost any other thing that you could do. Um, and so I would, I would sort of posit that to anyone who wants to break into angel investing, which is like, what are the products that you use um, enough to like kind of be able to almost suggest feedback to improve the product, which, you know, if you own a Tesla and drive a Tesla, you might be able to do that with, with, with your car, like just look around at the products that you kind of use every day um, and like tell your friends about and like buy people for Christmas as gifts, like the things that you're genuinely excited about, become investors in those companies if they're public, if they're not, like go find the CEO of the company on Twitter, or, you know, probably their email is probably their first name at their company name.com, send them an email with a bug report or like, and mention like, Hey, by the way, you know, I would love to invest like, if there's ever an opportunity to do so, uh, as little as $1,000 is pretty acceptable these days. Um, I think maybe some people don't know that, that you don't have to be incredibly affluent to angel invest, like, you can put $1,000 into, uh, into a company like Gumroad or, or, or anything else. Um, I think it's really, really important uh, to do actually to start small because you want to make many bets. Um, and that's, that's kind of like, that's it. Like just, in, you know, I, I kind of, when I tell, when I get, when I talk to friends about it, I just say, look, like basically investing is the art of like earning interest on your interests. So like find out what you're interested in. And then investing is kind of basically the idea that you can like put your capital into those interests and earn money back over time just by doing that. And Therefore, you should kind of just bet on the things that you're already interested in, right? Like, you don't have to, like, go, I don't know, to Bloomberg and try to, like, find some crazy company that nobody knows about. Like, the best thing to do is to, to be like, hey, this weird video game that I love that no one knows yet is actually by some Polish company that's public. So, like, maybe I should go invest in that company and then tell, all, you know, tell my friends to play this game and, like, try to help them. And that, I think, is the, is the right approach to get into it. Um, and, it, yeah, I think that's just, just generally if you're like, I need to be a good investor which means I have to go find really great opportunities. It just doesn't work because those opportunities are pretty obvious to everybody else who's an investor. But if you can go through your hobbies or your interests or something unique to you, I think you might sort of happen upon like a random company. For example, like I um, was doing some research on Regulation A and I found that the, the first uh, 
company to ever have have done a regulation a uh, IPO was actually wrote the regulate wrote the 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 rules for it was a company called uh, Willamette Valley Vineyards, which is a winery that's an hour away from me right now. And so I drove down there on Saturday and like hung out with them and was like, hey, this is super cool. Like we did Reg CF. The only reason we were able to do it is basically because like in 1988, your founder and CEO like made this happen. And they're publicly traded. You know, they're I think WVV on on NASDAQ or something. Um, and so just like that was not, you know, that wasn't because I was an investor. Like that kind of just, you know, you kind of like run into these random things. Like you buy a bottle of Riesling at Costco and you like Google the the wine company and you learn this kind of stuff, right? So um, I would just say like, kind of like just double click on what you're already doing. Like just go one level deep. Like instead of being like, wow, this is an amazing camera done, right? Just say, hey, this is an amazing camera. And then like go to the Wikipedia page of the, of the camera company, right? And like, you never know like what kind of stuff you'll run into. And that's kind of what I do all day is I just kind of like go down the rabbit holes, you know, a little bit farther than maybe other people do. And then every once in a while, I'm like, wait a second, like there's an amazing opportunity here. No one's thought about this in this way. Um, and you can kind of connect the dots sometimes. So you already mentioned it, but earlier in 21, you actually did a $5 million equity crowdfunding campaign. I believe the first one to max out that $5 million new limit. I think you had thousands of investors. I would love to get your perspective, not from the entrepreneur and company side, but from the investor side. What's your thoughts on, you know, these investors looking for these opportunities and investing into these equity crowdfunding opportunities? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an amazing, an amazing thing because I, I believe quite strongly that, you know, the best asset class in the world is early stage technology companies, because that's the future, right? Uh, the people who get to build the future. And to date, it's sort of pretty inaccessible. Uh, you have to be accredited. Um, you, you kind of may have to live in the Bay Area or like kind of know people. And the beauty of, of a platform like uh, WeFund or Republic or, or any of these other ones, um, Indiegogo, et cetera, is like you, you get to actually invest in way more companies, thousands of companies that get to list. And they're all audited. They're all kind of vetted by by the platforms themselves. And you get to put in, you, you get to kind of build, put in the reps, I guess, right? Where you get to invest a hundred bucks, I think was the minimum for the, for, for the Gumroad raise. And certainly like hard to say the quality of these companies, like, you know, of course, like there is, there are so issues with it um, because it, it can take some time. It's expensive. Um, there are kind of capital markets that exist for early stage. So, you know, you kind of do have to be, you, you should ask yourself the question, which is like, you know, why is this startup selling their stock, right, to me or wanting to, right? Like just generally, I think that's an important question to ask. Just like, you know, anytime you buy a used car, like, why are you selling the used car? You know, <laughs> uh, good, you know, maybe you had a new baby, you need an upgrade or maybe your car sucks, right? Like it's important to kind of figure that out. Um, and generally there should be like legitimate reasons for that. Like Gumroad, it was like, we want to hire, grow the team and I want to, bring my community on board and in this journey and we're not really on the venture back path anymore and you can read this blog post about that right um so yeah i mean i think it's amazing i think every investor should be spending time on these platforms and putting in 100 bucks at a time into you know ideally dozens of opportunities um things that they're genuinely interested in i almost think of it like a newsletter subscription with some asymmetric upside right which is like if you could follow the newsletter uh sort of like you know if you you could read like buffett's sort of annual letters and Bezos's annual letters, like who would you read annual letters from and then invest in those people again effectively? They will send you an email every year or every quarter and you will learn, you know, like I'm forced to learn about uh, I don't know, organ genesis, right? Like the ability, the science of, of producing organs from scratch because I want to invest in this thing and I'm, and the only way I get 
you know, I, or I, I did invest in this thing because I was interested in it. And now I have to like learn all this crap because there are all these words in the freaking updates that I don't understand. And that makes me smarter because then I spend like three hours on YouTube, like learning about this scientific breakthrough that, or this regulation change that happened in like May, 2021, uh, in which you can like now sort of do more research on fetuses past the age, uh, past, past week or day 20 or something like that. But I would have never learned that without someone telling me, you know, who works in the industry. And so I think, yeah, I think just curiosity, I think is like the name of the game here. Uh, you just have to be curious about things because that's the only way you're going to find all these weird, unique opportunities. And 99 out of 100 times, you're going to spend like three hours on YouTube and like, it's not going to really materially improve your life. But every once in a while, you like find some, you know, like this vineyard that happened to Reggae Plus, their company 20, 30 years ago. Um, and that might be very meaningful for me in the, in, you know, in the, in the future. And so I think, yeah, just just doubling down on your interest, double clicking on the things that, that you care about and investing in those sorts of things on these on these platforms. Like, for example, if you're really into health uh, or like, you know, I don't know, like paleo or something like that, there's tons of those kinds of DDC companies on these platforms. You should go buy their products and be like, what is the best one? And then become, you know, if you spend 100 bucks on the product, you might want to invest 100 bucks in the company. Um, right. And so that's that's generally like a pretty, I think, uh, simple approach. Um to do. And I, I think that that is also the appeal that I see of crowdfunding generally is that who knows the product uh, and the value of a product better than anybody except the customers, right? And so if you are a customer of a product, you 100% I think should basically invest in everything that you pay for, because you've already said that you're, you're willing to invest without any return, right? Like, right. you're, you're a believer so much in the product that you're giving them money, like you're non diluted financing, right? Um, so why not? put some skin in the game. And if I, you know, if you'd done that for like any of the products that you use every day, um, like Google, Amazon, Apple, like there's a reason that those companies are valuable. It's because everyone uses them, you know? Um, but 10 years ago, you might've been, you know, one of the first hundred million users of Amazon prime. Right. And now there are a billion of them or whatever. And so often that's the other thing I, I often like have to remind people is like, you might think you're late, but just remember that like, you know, you may not be right. There's 5 billion people roughly that like use the internet on like a weekly or so basis. Um, there are not 5 billion people on YouTube. There are probably 1 billion or so people on YouTube. So even YouTube has like a three or four X multiple and traffic to go. And that's before the, the other people who don't even use have the internet yet will get onboarded. Uh, you know, so it's still like, I think very early. And I find that many people are like, Oh, is it too late? Am I, you know, like, you know, did I miss, did I miss it? And I'm like, if you believe like the world ends tomorrow, then yeah, I guess you've missed it. But like, if you believe like I do that humanity is probably going to be around for a few hundred more years, at least, then of course not. Because like, if you just draw the line out, you know, at some point we will have a lot of crazy stuff and like, we will have self-driving cars and we will have AI and we will have um, remote work by default and all of these sorts of things. And that society I think will be pretty darn awesome, much more awesome than it is today. Um, and so therefore, like, of course you're early, right? Like, I don't, I don't see how you're not early. You know, I believe, for example, that humanity will at some point have 100 billion humans. Like there will be 100 billion humans alive at the same time. Um, that seems kind of obvious to me. Either that or we blow ourselves up and there's zero. Like either it's zero or 100 billion. Like th that's kind of what I see. Um, and okay, well, how many people are here on earth today? Like 8 billion. Okay, well, 100 divided by 8. Okay, so my investment thesis is that there will be roughly like 12x the number of humans uh, 12.5x the number of humans, you know, okay, well, then every asset will effectively 12.5x 12, 12 because demand, you know, supply sure. will grow by some amount, but demand will grow by much more. And so, and this is 
the history of the world. I mean, this is the history of American land. You know, like this is the history of the U.S. dollar. This, like, this is the history of Bitcoin. Like, um, so far to date, um, it seems to kind of play out pretty consistently. Of course, there's there's bumps along the road, but I think if you kind of just zoom out a little bit, um, the the picture looks pretty pretty rosy. I think to me. Let's um, go around the horn on the other asset classes. So, uh, real estate. Do you invest into that, or what's your point of view? Um, I personally, do, I do invest in real estate, but I just do it kind of similarly, like as an interest. Like I will buy a house for myself and use it almost as a customer in a sense. So I think of it like that. Um, but I have not invested in anything, any residence that I don't live in myself, for example. Um, How about um, regular art, not NFTs? I do own uh, regular art, fine art, oil paintings um, in my house, and so I definitely strongly believe in that and when i saw nfts sort of starting to happen and sort of at least like go go viral in in january 2021 um i was it made total sense to me because i was like yeah i literally own art and honestly i don't want to <laughs> like i would love to have the fine art scarcity aspect of the art without the dirt and oil on canvas part uh, sure. right and so yeah I, I fine art definitely like i i have certain artists that i think will be incredibly famous and successful in like 50 years and like i would love to own tons of their art you know in the next coming years before before that happens and then help them any particular artist you would want to mention yeah totally um i mean they're they're relatively unknown uh but there's a chinese artist named ro li r-u-o space l-i who i think is one of the best artists alive today um i think there's a there's an amazing artist uh landscape artist named josh clare c-l-a-r-e who i think is absolutely phenomenal um and these, these, you know, their paintings are already worth thousands of dollars. Um, like generally an oil painting that will go on your wall is probably in the, in the thousand, low thousands of dollars. Um, but, uh, and, and it's honestly, it's crazy. Like if you go, if you go to the, uh, I went to like the Western show in whatever LA, there's some museum and the most expensive painting there. And this is like, this is like a C2, like a SITU, one of the, like a very, very famous painting, uh, painter, um, and it was like 65 grand. It was like the most expensive painting there. And I'm like, wait, you can buy like, this is, this is like, you go to like the Seattle art museum and his paintings are, you know, he has a painting there. He's a very legitimate painter and you can get in $65,000. I mean, that's crazy to me. And at some point, you know, I assume that stuff will be a lot worth a lot more. I mean, that's less than a mutant ape, you know, like, uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I really believe in, in, in supporting artists and like the sort of patronage model. Um, and I, I wish there were, there was actually more of that. Like, I think, um, sort of the, you know, yeah, anyway, I, I, I'm a big believer. I, I think you, I, you I, mentioned, uh, the mutant ape, which is a great transition. What's your perspective on web three tokens, NFTs? Yeah. I mean, I'm a big, I'm a big fan. I think for me, you know, the interest starts with the technology, which kind of goes back to kind of like the Bitcoin white paper, which I think is, is kind of like incredibly important, uh, sort of computer science discovery. And, and so I believe sort of, I'm super bullish on the technology and the use of the technology to revolutionize like the world. And so I'm sort of a, uh, yeah, I, I think that there's much more to go in terms of crypto. And I think that started with Bitcoin, went to Ethereum, there's all these other things happening now. And so I'm, I, I really, yeah, I strongly believe in it. I will basically never sell any crypto ever. I only buy, um, and that sort of, I, I want that to be true basically forever. Um, and yeah, I sort of think of it like I only the money for me only goes one way, which is from fiat to crypto. It never goes the other way around. Um, I'm never going to sell crypto to to get into fiat. Like I would never do that. Um, and yeah, so I'm, I'm a. I'm you just a, double click on that, just so yeah. the listeners understand. Sure. Why not go back from crypto to fiat? 
Yeah, I mean, look, ultimately, I get my salary is in U.S. dollars, and you know, the company, my equity in Gumroad is kind of you know denominated in in U.S. dollars, and so I find that like basically, I will never be overexposed to crypto. I will always be perpetually underexposed to crypto, especially if crypto continues to grow. And so I find that like I should effectively. Yeah, like if I if I'm selling crypto, that basically means that what I'm saying is I believe that like the sort of future of of fiat and U.S. dollars has you know is is sort of more more optimistic outlook on fiat than crypto, which I basically will never believe. I I just cannot believe that. Um, that would be the same as me saying something like I believe like gas cars are more have a more interesting outlook than electric cars. Like no, sorry, they just won't. Um, and and yeah so that that's kind of like my fundamental belief um is is that there's more value to be created here probably 10x 100x the amount of value it's still very very early um it's going to need like endorsement by federal governments the sec etc to, to to really execute i think on the promise of crypto um, but i think it's here to stay like i i don't foresee that like any you know 2022 or anything being like 2017 personally like i just think yeah we're here in Q1 2022, and there's some choppiness in the market as we're chatting, both in the public markets, the private markets, the crypto markets. What's your point of view on the market? And you say you're seemingly quite long on crypto. Like, are you a buyer today? Um, yeah, I did. Literally, I am a buyer today. Um, yeah, I'm buying. Every, what are you buying? Every single day. Bitcoin, Ethereum. Yeah, and I'll continue to buy both of those um, sort of. Yeah. Uh, you know, any other uh, layer ones or any other apps? Um, currently just Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I'm starting my own like Web3 project um, to kind of learn and build more stuff. Um, and so that will kind of be a sort of a time investment for me and it'll have its own token associated with it. Um, so there may be some sort of value accretion there. But um, yeah, my sort of focus for 2022, and this is anytime the markets are up or down, I always think the answer is long term thinking and building learning and building those are constants like in up markets down markets like always trying to learn as much as possible and always trying to build um and so i'm spending you know a good chunk of 2022 probably building in web3 and i honestly i'm like kind of excited to be honest because it, it you know I, I don't mind that you kind of shake the the sort of thing and a bunch of people fall off you know like those people probably weren't hanging you know weren't that essential to the movement anyway um and so i'm, I'm okay with that sort of the re you know allocation of 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 attention and resources uh, every once in a while I, I think it's sort of healthy um but yeah i'm super excited I'm, I'm very excited i mean i think like for example like i moved to the bay area in 2010 and many people were not investing that actively like i mentioned i went to yc demo day like why was i able to do that it's because there was room for a random person like me in this you know like there were like 100 people there investing you know and like imagine this is like the year that like instagram slack snapchat pinterest and you're telling me that like there was 100 people investing in startups effectively in that time it's mind-boggling and it's the same thing like there are pinterest and slacks and snapchats being built today right because back then it was 2010 and stripe was starting 20 2008 2009 pinterest started in 2008 like many of these things were not you know they raised money in 2010 but they were started a couple years earlier so i think it's a phenomenal time to basically just stop getting distracted. You know, one downside of, of markets that are going up only is because everyone just starts focusing on like how awesome it is and how smart they are instead of actually building stuff, which is like ultimately the most important thing is like, actually, if you want this thing to, to work as an asset, there's one really simple way to do that, which is you just show the world that there's true value here, right? It's like, hey, we solved this problem uh, better, faster, cheaper than we were able to solve it before without this technology. And if you're able to show the world that you can do that, whether that's DeFi, whether that's NFTs, um, 
then I think you know you'll you'll get back there, right? Ultimately, asset prices are not dictated by the value of the technology. Always, it's 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 like well, there's a trillion dollars uh, of money that that has to get has to move this way and that way, and like you know the the sort of macro decisions that that have to be made in order to manage risk are very very different than I think that the decisions that like an individual investor should be making, right? And so I think when markets go up ten percent, twenty percent down, whatever. I think you you know it's it, it's easy to say oh I know why right um, but truthfully like very few people really truly know why I would argue basically nobody does um, and so ultimately like all you can do is like build a strategy that works you know like I don't know what the price of anything is to be honest um, I don't look at it basically ever um, every once in a while someone texts me and be like hey how's the market and obviously I see like what's happening on Twitter so I can get a sense but I can't tell you what the price of anything is. Um, Right now. Speaking of, speaking of prices really fast, do you think that the choppiness in the market um, is going to have an impact on early stage investing prices? That's a great question. Um, I don't think it should, but I think it will. Um, and the reason I don't think it should is because if you're investing in a company at pre-seed, it's not going to go public. You know, it's not going to really get like a sort of priced, uh, priced by the market for five, 10 years. And so I think it's kind of weird that people are like, so reactive uh you know either upwards or downwards it's it's kind of shocking to me sometimes uh but i do i I do think they'll probably go down because i think people are very mimetic people will kind of copy each other and there's frankly not that many leaders at pre-seed seed it's mostly a bunch of followers and so i think those people and their behavior will effectively dictate the rest of the behavior so if sequoia pulls back or andreessen for example pulls back uh, and that i think is the big risk here right is like we have basically turned Silicon Valley into this kind of winner-take-all thing in which there's sort of the Andreessen's and Tiger Globals of the world who are deploying like a good chunk of the total amount of capital, which effectively means that if they say, hey, we're pulling back or we're doing something different, uh, and those people are effectively raising money from a lot of, you know, the sort of public market people, then then yeah, like I think that will probably trigger some sort of downstream effects. Um, but like, look, like 2008 to 18, 2019 versus 2020, 2021, like some people like, you know, when you look at what VCs are paying, saying on Twitter, you think like valuations went from like 1 million to 50 million or something like, no, they went from like five to 10 million to like 10 to 25 million, right? Like it doubled. Yeah. I'm not saying that that's not nothing. Doubling is still a lot. Uh, but it's, it's, you know, if it goes down by 20, 30, 40 percent it's not that you know like i i think like on, on a macro view it's not that different like i raised you know around for gumroad um at, in 2011 at a five million post and people are you know that round today would be at a 10 million post and it's been 10 years so i don't think a doubling in 10 years is that crazy um maybe it would be 20 million at the sort of peak and peak you know the peak of peak but even that is a kind of a doubling of, of a doubling which is still not that crazy to, to me and maybe we go back down at like 15 or 10 or something like that but I think the thing that won't change, in my view, is that everyone now knows that like, if you can build a valuable tech company, you, there is a path to a $100 million valuation or more. That exists. It's a non-zero path. It, it, and that is, it's sort of a Pandora's box thing. Like you've, we've now seen that happen many times. And that, I think, will, it will effectively create a new ceiling on, on pre-seed valuation. So I think while the, like the, the range will stretch, I think if you come up with a compelling idea um, and by the way, Stripe, when they raised their seed round, they raised it in 2008 or 2009. It was a 2 million seed by Sequoia at a 20 million post. And I remember reading that announcement and being like, that I've never seen anything like that happen before. Like, that is an insane price. 20 million post at a pre-seed seed. I mean, pre-seed didn't exist back then, so just seed. Um, 
It turned out it was an amazing investment. And so I find that like the outliers almost kind of predict the future in that way, where like Stripe was sure. really kind of canary in a coal mine. And my guess is that was pretty reasonable. Like I think 20, 25 million post is probably where seed valuations kind of should be given given where we see these companies get built over time. Like my guess is it'll stabilize around for like the top companies, for the kind of the Y Combinator Stripe level companies. And you know, any time in the market the last 10 years, I've seen five to seven million post. Even when the markets are crazy, there are always founders who are raising at five to seven million posts. Like, I, you know, not everyone is connected. Not everyone is doing Y Combinator. Not everyone is tweeting and raising $5 million. You know, like that, that happens, but it's, it's sort of, those are the headlines, right? Those are the things that make the front page. There are many things that, you know, don't. So um, we all want to get into your head and learn as much as you're learning and know what you're knowing. So what are you reading? What are you watching? What are you listening to? What are the tangible pieces that you can tell our listeners to try to follow you with? Yeah, so I read books. That is the biggest thing I think I can do to make me smarter, mostly because these books are written not in 2020, 2021, 2022. Uh, and so I find they have probably less bias uh and they have a couple that you like yeah so yeah i was just uh so i'm currently reading a book called escape from freedom which is a phenomenal book i I wish i remember who recommended it to me or how i found out about it it's been amazing basically about the the italian renaissance and how it created this sort of free society more than it ever done and it created this sort of anxiety among people uh because all of a sudden when your needs get met you kind of have this like anxiety you know that comes from the freedom the sort of paradox of choice and talks a lot about kind of like, you know, what do people want when they have all their basic needs met, right? And one answer is fame. Fame never existed kind of before Da Vinci. And, and like that kind of was a new thing that people started to seek. Um, so I think that's very fascinating, probably quite relevant to today when more, more and more people are kind of post-economic in a sense. Um, I'm currently reading a book called Spent um, by this guy, Geoffrey Miller, Jeffrey Miller, who's a psychologist um, and he, or psychology professor. Uh, it's called Spent Sex, Evolution, and Consumer Behavior. The idea is that sort of modern consumerism is is sort of a, a function, a product of Darwinian evolution. Um, and you kind of have a lot of these examples. Like the reason we buy clothes is to status signal so that we can go on a date with a mate and have babies or whatever, right? That's kind of the simple version of it. Um, and so that's another book that I'm I'm reading right now. I also just recently re- read uh, Ray Dalio's new book, which is like much more, like I honestly often don't like books like that because this guy is talking his own book, right? Like this guy is very exposed to the market. And so you got to be a little careful with everything that, and, and frankly, these people are, they, they have too many friends. They have too many friends in power. So like, you know, you always have to be a little careful with, I think, with what these people are saying. I love books written in like the 80s. You know, I love books written by dead people, right? Because they're not trying to appease anybody. Um, so I find that those are often the, the, the most valuable books. Like The Sovereign Individual, you know, is probably kind of like the book that I recommend everybody read right now. Um, and that was written, like, I think published in 1988 and talks about e-money, which, you know, basically cryptocurrency. Amazing. Uh, a lot of those kinds of those kinds of books. Yeah. For the folks on the listening, trying to figure out how to diversify their portfolio into alts, do you have any suggestions for how yeah. you think about it? Oh man, I would I would follow a bunch of people on Twitter. I would read a lot of books. I would go through my bank account and my credit card statement and literally just go through and be like, what independent brands on Shopify did I support? You know, um, and and build build or start building relationships with with people generally. I think Bill Gurley said it really well years ago about Twitter, where he said something like Twitter is the only place in the world would effectively you can sort of prove your worth, prove how smart you are by replying, uh, get a follow back and then DM that person and then effectively like have a phone call 
with someone you never would have been able to meet for in 20 years. Um, and so I find that like, that's kind of where I recommend people spend their time is like sign up for these, where are these smart people spending their time? Generally it's on Twitter, um, or in their email inbox or something like that. Uh, and then uh, the other thing I would, I would add is, is start writing, you know, like I think one great way to sort of think through what you believe is to start writing down what you believe and you'll quickly realize like your, your thoughts have a lot more holes in them than you think, uh, like plot holes effectively in your, in your brain. And yeah, the more, there's two functions. One is you start writing, you get better at writing uh, and thinking uh, and investing therefore, but two, it'll get you in front of the right kinds of people, right? For example, I tweeted, this is like kind of a, a crude example, but I tweeted about synthetic wombs uh, last week in a reply to Elon and it went viral because I said it in a very pithy way and Vitalik from Ethereum replied and whatever. It kind of became this big thing. And honestly, so grateful that I tweeted that though I certainly could have worded it better because I got so many DMs from people who have been building in this space who are like, wow, I never knew anyone would ever I've been building this because I'm a med student at, at Harvard and I don't want to tell anyone that I care about artificial wounds because it's a really taboo topic, which I didn't know. Oops. Uh, but if you know, you're seem to be an investor, I'd love to tell you uh, what I've been working on for the last two years in my home or in my garage or whatever, you know, it turns out by the way, that anyone can do science. This is like blew my mind having some of these conversations, but like you can kind of just do science. No one owns science. <laughs> you don't have to go to school to do science. Like most many, much science is done in garages and houses. Um, which is kind of mind boggling, but and kind of scary. I get that. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's true. And so I find, I, you know, I think the lighthouse moment, right? Like the, the beacon, like if you are interested in something, like I guarantee you every single person who works on anything related to synthetic wombs saw that tweet, it was sent to them. And the five to 10% of people who are building stuff need to raise money, et cetera, all DM me. And I have calls with them all, you know, basically. And so Effectively, I've like been able to, and I didn't have to find out who was, I, I, there's not even, a, there's no Yahoo directory of who's working on synthetic wombs. All you can do is, is say something and hope that those people find you, right? And so that's kind of the same thing. If you find out that you have a thesis that's really interesting and compelling, uh, write about it, write the best possible, the canonical piece on that thesis. And you'll, you may be surprised at kind of what that can do for you, what can, that can do for your connections, who you meet. The, the opportunities that, that you get access to. Um, but it's never going to happen if you don't put yourself out there. I think many people think that they can just kind of do this silently. But I don't think it's a coincidence that like some of the best investors of all time, Bezos, Buffett, Elon, are very public figures. I think that feedback loop, one, makes them smarter, and two, constantly reminds everybody else that like if they are working on something like brain-computer interfaces or self-driving cars or whatever, they need to get in front of Elon instead of random VC over there, right? Or something like that. And so I, I, I think that the, it's just sort of, it's one of those things that I see every single person do it that I'm like, there's, it's not probably not an accident that all of these people write, you know, like I have friends who are like, or actually a better example is I have LPs in, in my fund who are like, why do you tweet? Which is always, it's like kind of amazing to, to me. They're like, what, like, I'm like, what, what? Like you're asking me and they're like, yeah, Twitter, it's a waste of time. Like, you know, like whatever. I'm like, yeah, I get, I get that cr critique, I guess. You're kind of equating Twitter to like in an Instagram or something. Um, but like every, like half the investments I've made are people that I met on Twitter. Like half the LP, like it's funny because some of these LPs like found out about me from Twitter and they're like, why do you- And then they're questioning. Yeah, no, it's yeah, I'm like, Well, how do you know me? Uh, 
so I, I, yeah, it's, it's, and I'm always like, look, every single founder that is, is a, is, is a tweeter. Why? Because they need to sell, they need to hire, they need to tell their story, uh, to the markets and they, you know, there's one way to do that. One, you know, which is Twitter, like Trump, Bernie, AO, like literally everybody. And everybody who, you know, needs to talk to their, and obviously all these other social channels are great, but the beauty of Twitter is you can just put it in text and then those, it'll get propagated everywhere for free on your behalf. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I always kind of have to remind people that like publishing thoughts on the internet is very valuable. Um, very, very, very valuable. And yeah, no, and, and, and I'm, but I'm grateful that people don't because it gives me the space, you know, like it, it it's kind of, I get to eat more cake, you know? Um, to put you on the spot with one last question, we asked this of all the guests, what would you recommend to be investing in now and tangibly um, today, uh, Q122, that three years from now, you think we'll see good results against any of these private asset classes, all yeah. the asset classes? Yeah. I mean, I think BTC, ETH, like that's like, I'll literally tell you my trade, not financial advice, but what exactly what I did was I put 50% in Bitcoin and 50% into Ethereum. I think those are like asset classes on their own. Uh, so you kind of like, I'm sort of indexing on the ecosystem and I believe that they're here to stay. I believe that sort of like Bitcoin is, uh, is sort of revolutionary. Like we'll look back on it as just as important as like, the invention of fiat you know, in 1972 or what have you. Like, I really believe that. Um, you don't have to. I'm not convincing anybody, but that's what I believe. Um, and so that that's kind of my my bet today is is BTC, ETH, 50-50. Um, obviously, you can kind of do more than that. But to do anything more than that, you have to buy those two first anyway, right? Which I think makes those two even safer for me. But, um, and then what I would probably do is I would literally look at the public companies that I have wanted to invest in for a long period of time, but never felt like I could because they've always seemed too expensive. And maybe if they were, you know, if you felt like you almost wanted to and they're now down, maybe you should, you know, like otherwise you're just kind of being intellectually dishonest with yourself, right? You never you have to. an example. Um, I, uh, what's a good example? I mean, honestly, I would literally just look at Fang and be like, what dropped the most? Um, I believe all Fang companies, um, especially Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, Google, um, will be worth literally, I mean, I'm not joking, like tens of trillions of dollars each in 10 years or 50 years. Like th those things are here to stay. Amazon is here to stay. Um, and certainly Google is, Apple certainly is like th those, those three are products that I use literally every day all the time. And so I would bet on those any day. So if, if, if any, I don't know, I literally don't know cause I haven't checked the markets. Uh, but if any of those things are down more than 10, 20, 30%, whatever, whatever is down most, like I would, that I think is like easy. I, I, I cannot imagine that we're like, we, we've, we've, I, Elon said this well, I think he's like, you, you either believe that we're going to go to Mars or you believe that like the moon is the last place, the farthest humanity will ever get. And I'm very, I would be very, and so it's similar with all time highs. You either believe that we've seen the most value ever in these companies or that we're, we'll see more. And my guess is we'll probably see more. Um, and you know, well said, well yeah. said. It's been an incredible to, conversation. Yeah. yeah. If 20, 2021 was the moon, you know, and whatever we're in now is like, you know, the orbit, uh, we're still not at Mars, right? Like we're still, we're still, we still don't have self-driving cars. We still ha don't have general purpose intelligence. We won't for many decades, but like there is a future that is better than the present. Um, and that future, you know, money is effectively a measure of wealth and much more wealth will be created. Uh, and, you know, 
it, it's it's sort of humanity is the greatest Ponzi scheme, right? It relies on more generations. And like, as long as you believe that, as long as you believe more people will have more kids, which I believe because I believe strongly in making it easier and cheaper to have kids, um, that will that will happen, you know? And, and honestly, like I'm only interested in betting that way anyway, because I'm not interested in, in betting the other way, because if I bet the other way, that's kind of assuming that everything goes to crap. And like, that's not why I invest. I don't invest. For that. <laughs> I, I put money in my bank account for everything to go to crap. That's, you know, but when I'm thinking about investing, then I'm thinking about, you know, w where can I position myself to be, a, you know, I, I don't use leverage, right? So I'm not really margin called or anything. I don't do any of that, but like anything that I can afford to lose, I'm putting in where I believe the future is. Well, thank you so much for your time. From a hundred billion people that will be here to books from dead people, synthetic wombs, and betting on BTC and ETH. We've gone through a windy road with you and thank you so much for your time, Sahil. This has been awesome. Um, we appreciate you here. You're welcome. Thanks so much for, for having me, for doing this. Smart Humans with Slava Rubin is a podcast brought to you by the team at Vincent. Any data, text, or other content in this podcast is provided as general market information and not as investment advice. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future results. For more information on alternative investing, check out Vincent at www.withvincent.com.